Hi everyone, welcome to our uh, next episode of the RT Show. This time we, we're looking at what's going on in the world, the, the main news story that, that happened uh, only a few days ago from the time we're recording, the Russian forces invading Ukraine. I know they, they the Russian state don't like it being phrased as that, but that's what they're doing. They've got they've entered another country without permission by force. They're they're killing people. They're destroying things. They're forcing people out of their homes. They've invaded them. They've attacked them. It's it's something that's developing quite rapidly day by day. So we're just going to try and just give our give our views on it. We've got Liam who's joined us, who's been on some previous shows. I think I've described you previously Liam, as a political enthusiast, which is one of many things we we can use to describe you. With you. You've got many interests, but but this is we know this is very political this invasion of Ukraine. And of course, Jez is with us. Unfortunately, again, Rich is unable to join us. He's got other commitments, but he'll be back in, a, in, a, in the next show or two. So we'll, we'll, we'll dive in there. The, I don't want to call it Russia's war because I, I don't think it is. It's Putin's war. It's the Kremlin's, not even a war, invasion. It's an invasion. It's not Ukraine. Have a, they didn't want this. They didn't seek this. They didn't do anything to warrant it. Although Putin would have people believe differently. So, what's our take on it? What is you know the reasons for Putin entering Ukraine, despite his quite absurd and ridiculous denials before they actually did set foot into Ukraine that he wasn't going to invade when he was you know amassing his hundreds of hundred and fifty thousand troops i think it is on the borders so liam what's your view what what was the primary reason for entering ukraine and and trying to overthrow the government so primary reason is a, a very difficult thing to pin down with this one i think there's a huge number of motivating factors that i think have have pushed Putin to do what he's doing. I think probably what we've been given as the primary reason, and what I think is maybe one of two primary reasons, is obviously the talks that the Ukraine and the Ukraine's leadership have been having with NATO. It's no secret that Russia is very, Russia is very, very mistrustful of NATO, which is kind of understandable considering part of the reason it was set up was to deter them from, from taking more territory, particularly in Eastern Europe. I think that's the reason that Putin, that's that's the reason Putin would like us to go with, that he fears an incursion by by NATO and NATO troops over his borders. But I think there's there's, there's also the natural resources element of it, which is the Ukraine is one of one of Europe's biggest grain producers, which is something that historically Russia's, you know, struggled with consistency with and that famines with i think you can't ignore the fact they've got some of the some of the world's biggest coal mines russia's still very reliant on coal obviously russia part of the reason they took crimea from the ukraine back in 2014 with a it's an ice an ice free naval port but obviously it's very closely bordered by the ukraine so i think there's an element of the one a bit more territory around crimea as a buffer zone and then obviously there's the issue of these these russian identifying i suppose ukrainian citizens in the east in the donbass so I think the reason that Putin would like us to believe, which I think is the NATO incursion, is one of the biggest reasons. But, I mean, we could sit here all night listing, listing the reasons why Putin would do what he's doing, but I think NATO is probably the main one. Jez, what's, what, what are your thoughts on that one? Well, I was thinking, um, just kind of reading up in, into this a bit more further, because I'm trying to see little snippets of news articles around what's been going on. And obviously going back to the time when Trump was obviously in charge, obviously, as president, and that kind of link there between Putin and almost becoming like, like allies, more or less, now, like at that time, previously. And it, it brought a bit of my attention around, you've got kind of two leaders with that much power. You don't know what discussions were going on in the background. 
around which countries to kind of look at invading and territory. And if you look at some of these situations that are happening across the, I mean, across the, well, I'd say across the world now in terms of the cost of living with Russia, they're kind of really big energy giant, aren't they, in terms of the things such as coal, all the kind of minerals that they keep in that country. I almost get a sense that they want to kind of control other areas around them. I know you mentioned, Liam, around Crimea in 2014 and the situation there, but it does bring bring back a lot of why other things have been affected globally and economically as well. And I think with, with what's going on and we've seen obviously rises eventually for us, for our energy bills is this a knock-on effect from what's going on over there in Russia? Is that one of the main reasons really why that's kind of happening? But I do see it as an element of kind of control that they want to take back in Ukraine and kind of overthrow the president over there. But as you said, I think they're, I mean, they're fighting back and they don't want that to happen, which is rightly so. And they're a proud country, Ukraine are, and we'll just have to kind of see what happens. But it is, it is strange that it's kind of just happened now after all what's been going on around the pandemic things are starting to come to back to some form of normality. And it's like, right, we're going to do this now. And this is what's going to happen. It's just like another tale of what's happening now in terms of our kind of future and history, really, because uh, it is going to be part of history, this is. And and, and we know from from the off, he, Putin has, I think he, he assumed that they would just lay down and surrender the, mm. the Ukrainians. Mm. There's been quite a lot in the media over the last few days and I heard something earlier today that they expected to to captured Kiev and overthrow the government by Sunday. Obviously mm-hmm. that's not happened. He, he's been described there's been many adjectives to describe Putin over the years, but um, in terms of of the invasion of Ukraine and how it's gone, he was overconfident and arrogant that that, that would just happen. And that they would surrender and only and we we had like a, a bit of an exchange via WhatsApp, didn't we, about some of the former politicians, current politicians, former boxing world champion who has taken to the who is now, I think he's the mayor of Kiev, isn't it? Um, they've taken to the to the streets to 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 protect their people and their country because it means so much to them. It's it's not just a case of, yeah, we're just gonna hand everything over to to Russia. So where is Putin going to go next with, with this? Because he's amassed so many troops pretty much all the way around Ukraine and he, he has brought them in from you know all different sides. Where is he going to go next? To, because he, unfortunately, they, they are making advancements. There's been bombings in, in Kiev today. They've taken down a communication tower and killed five people in Kiev today. There's been, there's been more civilians than that that have died across the region. What's he going to do next? Because he's, he's determined to, to take the country. So kind of a two-pronged question. So what's he going to do next? And if he does manage to overthrow Ukraine, what, what happens after that in terms of the rest of the world? Liam, yeah, I'll come to you for what, what's, what's he going to do next with, with his military to step things up even further than he already has? I mean, looking at the way he's massed troops kind of across a really broad swathe of the border. So he's obviously spoken to spoken to the leadership of Belarus and he's he's got their permission to attack through their territory. He's yeah. massed a huge force in the south of the com- country in the Crimean Peninsula. And he's also expected minimal resistance and an element of surprise from there because it's a very narrow peninsula that connects Crimea to the rest of the Ukraine, which you could defend that against a large force with quite a small force quite effectively if you were ready for it, just because of the sheer you know narrowness of the land there. So it's obvious that this were always planned to be not just the swoop in and take the capital type incursion, but this were always meant to be a large scale invasion across kind of, I mean, I think covering about 55% of the border with Russian troops, basically. I think his his plan is to, I mean, it's it's the most simple plan when you're looking to, you know, gain control of another country. You sweep in quickly, you use 
very showy, loud weaponry. It's all artillery, it's incendiary, even airburst incendiary, stuff like napalm and that kind of thing, which are reports of that being used. A kind of overwhelming show of force like we've seen with missiles being fired in civilian buildings and that kind of thing. And the idea is, I think, to cow the population and then sweep into the capital, sweep the government out, find some pro-Russia, Ukrainian, you know, re- Ukrainian leader and elevate him to power and then withdraw, painting him as the kind of glorious leader who threw the Russians back. And then every time Russia demands a concession from the Ukraine in the future, it becomes a case of remember who put you in power, remember who put you there. I think what's actually happening is quite different. And I think that Putin has underestimated the Ukrainian people and he's not taking a lesson from he's not taking a lesson from history that it could have it could have seen quite clearly if he'd have thought this through. But the fact is that Ukraine is not the ruined kind of ex-Soviet republic that it was when they pulled out in 1991. They've got a modern air force, they've got a well-trained standard army, even if it's not that big. I mean, I believe they have kind of conscripted mandatory military service. I'm, I'm pretty sure that all, all lads there have to do a year in the military, which can only really be deferred by university education. Even then, you've got to do it afterwards. As a country, I mean, they put up a very effective resistance against, against Germany in the 40s. They were a thorn in the side of Moscow during the Soviet era. I think they've rebuilt their country after after the fall of the Soviet Union in 91, and they, they ain't going to give it back easily. And that's, that's the truth of it. I mean, at the moment... There's supposed to be a 40-mile convoy of, of Russian troop-carrying trucks and armour kind of moving towards Kiev. And I think this is Putin throwing all his toy soldiers in to try and overwhelm Kiev. But quite honestly, he's throwing all those troops at one very well-defended point. And I think the best he can hope for at this stage. The Ukrainians, have, because they've slowed the advance, they've had time to, to dig in, to build defences. The stuff there, they are not just going to walk into Kiev Unless they like being caught unaware by mouse holes, landmines, booby trap bridges, explosive traps, roadblocks. A lot of this stuff is being constructed in, in, on the outskirts of Kiev right now. And the only really effective way to get rid of that, rid of that with minimal loss of life, is airstrikes. The problem is they've underestimated Ukraine's air force and they've not managed to gain air superiority, not by a long shot. There's actually been more Russian jets shot down. Ukrainian jets, even though the Russian jets are more modern. So I think his solution is going to be throwing men at this and trying to overwhelm Kiev and try and take Kiev. But, and I mean, this is probably an answer to another question, but taking Kiev in this particular situation, taking the capital isn't the end. I think it seems like in his mind, yeah, if he takes Kiev, he takes down the government. That, that he doesn't like because they're not they're not pro-Russian. And the, there's a lot of propaganda put out there, and we've seen we've seen things that uh, it's things that the Russian state media are putting out to their own people, and the the, the narrative that they're they're giving them, you know, they're, they're not using the word invasion or war or attack. I think they're using the phrase that they they they're liberating the Ukrainian people, and the Russian troops are using force to keep the peace, which is a bit of an oxymoron. It's trying to keep the peace using force to keep the peace. But you know, people can see what is what he's doing with with Jez. What are your views on that and the the narrative that he's trying to is trying to build? We know, like Liam's just said, with the forces, he's throwing men at trying to overthrow the capital. But the narrative that he's putting out, which when you see, yes, it's it's presented to us through a translator, but you know, there's no reason to disbelieve the translation that's that's put over his words. He's painting a picture that's it just seems almost it's it's just unbelievable to people because you you've seen what he's been building towards for the. 
since he's been in power, changed the, the Russian constitution to give himself more power. You know, we know that it, any opposition are thrown into into prison. You know, protests are pretty much banned. You get arrested and thrown in prison if you protest. In spite of that, there's still a fair amount of people in Russia that are on the streets protesting, knowing that they'll be arrested and thrown in prison. If that wasn't the case, I'm quite sure there'd be a damn sight more people out on the streets because like we said earlier it's not the russian people's war it's putin's and the kremlin's yeah. invasion so what are your thoughts on, on that jez yeah i think i think um going back to what kind of liam mentioned just near the end around i mean it's not it's not just ukraine I and mean, kiev there's probably going to be more to this to be honest um, when you think of it and going back to the 90s as you mentioned when it was the ussr and the soviet union almost get a feeling that he wants those countries back you're looking at obviously Hungary Belarus is almost tied with now obviously they've got military bases there in Belarus so they're actually with they're working with the Russians and with Putin to kind of invade Ukraine a lot of airstrikes are coming from either the Belarus stations or from the Russian military bases so it's almost like showing that if I destroy Kiev which touch what it doesn't happen that he wants to kind of show that he's in power He's the person making all the moves on the chessboard and he's going to then look at saying, okay, now I've done this, who's going to come at me next? Because obviously NATO have already kind of said, look, we're going to be severing ties. And if you look around, obviously, on a lot of news articles being published, Russia are losing out on a lot of things that are coming on. Contracts are being cancelled. There's all sorts of sports. When you look at Apple, they've just said they're, you know, I mean, they're going to be closing down their stores. So you can't even purchase anything in Russia from Apple. A lot of those things are having a knock-on effect on their economy. So whilst he's continuing to do this as his next move, it's going to have a knock-on effect on their economy as well in Russia because it's going to be biting them back in the bum, shall we say, going forward. So I think he's in his head he wants those countries back to how they were. And so it's almost like a Soviet Union. But as you said, that is. He's living in Kukulang with the way he's going to try and do that because there will be other allies of those other countries who will go back when obviously you think of Germany, China, countries that did have an alliance with Russia in terms of trade and industry. They've already kind of said, look, we're not going to deal with you anymore. And this one is to stop you breaking international law. You know, I mean, we need this to stop. Putin needs to stop this. And it's going to affect their economy badly if it doesn't. So he needs to consider his actions, really, and his next moves and when it does stop these airstrikes because it's not just damaging, obviously, the human human lives that are on on those lands. He's, I mean, he's he's got to think of obviously the economy for now when the, the the country builds itself back up in Russia as well because they may not be able to survive this once it, if he does ever get caught. That is as well. I think that the second part that we we're going to discuss might, might do that sort of towards the end. After we've we've looked at the the effect on the civilians because there's been a massive number of displacement already, and it's we're not even as as we record, we're not even a week into mm-hmm. this yet. One hundred sixty thousand, maybe maybe no, there's one hundred sixty thousand. I think maybe today, but the, there's reports of six hundred thousand civilians who've already fled the Ukraine and again that's in less than a week it's a huge number of people who've been displaced from their country unwillingly this is the, this is a thing as well that people need to remember they're not had this invasion not have occurred they, they wouldn't have chosen to, to leave the country they've been forced to leave the country for theirs and their family's safety we know that uh, from things we've heard that any any males aged 16 under they're, they're being refused exit from the country because they've been asked to I think something was changed in the Ukrainian constitution over the last few years for a situation like this it's that that they they will ha- they will have to stay and fight basically. So families uh, are being split up as well because of this invasion. So what thinking about that 
and the refugees that have gone on to neighbouring countries so far, and I know the UK have said that they'll take some, and we know that that's going to cause from certain sections of, of the media and society, the right, let's say, that's going to cause a whole heap of other backlash and uh, lots of racism let's say and xenophobia will will come will come from that so jez what what is it that you want to focus on in regards to the refugees yeah i think i think one of the the key points that we're listening to kind of the, the conversation that the ukrainian president had was around the people that are being protected or needs to be protected or needs to seek refuge and needs to flee the country and it was quite an interesting uh point i think it's been kind of aired quite globally now. I think people have seen who, what he mentioned when he said, oh, blonde hair, blue eyes, Europeans need to be saved. That got me thinking, well, hang on, I've seen not just blonde hair, blue eyes <laughs> in obviously civilians there. As you said, they are residents and Ukrainian who are fleeing the country, live there, but there's also people who've moved there. There's obviously Africans who are doctors. There's probably Middle Eastern people who are also learning and learning trade, working there, living there, or probably have residency there in Ukraine. But when he kind of mentioned that, he kind of just thought, is there a segregation happening? Because that's kind of notifying people who are trying to seek, obviously, to leave the country. Are they now letting Ukrainians leave and then stopping others who are not there to stay, if, if, including a few women, children, obviously of different nationalities, backgrounds, ethnicities? It got me really confused on that. And yeah, and I was a bit baffled by why he did say that. He should have said everyone who's contributed or who lives in the Ukraine, you know I mean? We want to protect you. Obviously, that's caused quite a lot of confusion and a lot of backlash from a number of media outlets. Some have said, obviously, bad things as well. Some media outlets have kind of said good things that, look, this needs to be addressed. Even though, obviously, what's happening over there is really bad. You know I mean? He needs to kind of maybe backtrack on what he said and maybe look and say, look, it's not just about blonde hair, blue eyes. It's about everyone that's contributed to that country or who's making a living there as well, that they need to be protected as well at all costs and given the equal opportunity to leave the country, to flee to Poland and seek refuge to flip to any area other various countries as well. But it got me really thinking about that more and how that's perceived for people from other nationalities who are in other countries. Are they kind of vulnerable now in you know, I mean, in other war-torn areas, if if it does happen, say, for example, in Poland, Hungary, I mean, those other countries, if, you know, I mean, this invasion does increase, it's just got me, it just got me a bit scared around that, really, and how that's going to go, go out there, because it is not just, obviously, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people there in Ukraine, there's people from other backgrounds in that country, and it, it was a little disheartening hearing that, shall I say, from a president that is, I mean, he's trying to do his best, but I think he needs to realise that probably what he said there was quite wrong in that aspect. So, so- there's, from what you've seen, there's a disparity between asylum um, or refugee status that's been afforded to European, white European mm. people and people that aren't white that are fleeing, trying to flee Ukraine. Yeah. That goes back to you know biases and things, doesn't it? Even, even in times of countries being invaded, there's, there's a war going on. People still hold biases yeah. rather than these are humans that you know just want to be mm. safe. Yeah, and it's it's really worrying. So I mean, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be the last in my eyes. If I'm a leader of a country trying to protect the public in that country and trying to protect them all from what's going on, he should be he should be the one that's guiding everybody, not segregating people, because it makes things worse. Then and the last thing which a president should be thinking about is being obviously overtly racist. And should be thinking about look, this is about the public. This is about this is Putin's war. I want this to end. This is how I want it to end. And I, I these are the people I want to protect 
from all nationalities who are living here who've contributed here and I mean we want to make sure everybody's getting this, the equal um, amount of when you hear people who are like women and babies like in who are from obviously African descent out in the cold kind of you know I mean waiting for that I mean that phone not the phone call but that call from the Ukrainian soldiers to say right you're next to the train and they've probably been waiting maybe 48 to 72 hours who knows what's happened there I think there's also been doctors who've said something similar that they've not you know what I mean? The way they've been treated. It's almost like a bit of, I mean, you're not going yet. You're going to be waiting here. And this is what, you know what I mean? We're protecting the people who are Ukrainian, shall we say, and it's kind of splitting the lines there, which isn't good because then it makes, it perceives then to other people. If I'm in a country where, I mean, those biases are still present, what's going to happen to me or what's going to happen to someone who's in France, who's Algerian or, do you know what I mean? In those particular countries where there is those unconscious biases that still live on. So it just it just makes you think a lot about that, really, about that segregation, and it shouldn't have to happen still when there's a, a war that's happening, really, across um, that's affecting everybody. What, what are your thoughts on that, Liam? Is there, even in, in this horrendous time of war, invasion is there a you know a them and us mentality when it's when it comes to preference of who gets to safety or seek refuge first i think it's a it's a difficult question to answer i think what i'd say is that that section of the world and i'm being very careful what i say here because i don't want to give the the idea that i'm making a sweeping generalization that eastern europe is it's kind of a hotbed of racism that being said I mean, mean, let's take Yugoslavia as an example, which was an ethnic conflict between, essentially between different groups of white people with differing religious beliefs, differing nationalist identities. And that turned into an incredibly destructive, incredibly bitter and bitter and twisted five-year war full of atrocities and murders and massacres. And that, I think, is between a group of white people of differing beliefs and differing religions. I think then when you take into account the fact that migration to Eastern Europe from kind of further south, from the Middle East, from Africa, from Asia, it's it's a fairly new thing to them. It's not like the UK where we're a more integrated, I don't want to say fully integrated society because we've still got, we've still got Irish who's massively with prejudice and racism as we know. But I think we're a lot further on the path than they are in Eastern Europe. That being said... This isn't your man in the street talking. This is the president of a country. This is a leader of one of Europe's largest countries, one of Europe's largest populations who wants to be a part of the EU, who wants to be a part of NATO, apparently. And I think while you can kind of, you can, I don't want to say forgive, but you can kind of understand the man in the street's ignorance towards the fact that his country isn't 100% white and that he has Ukrainian citizens contributing to that economy who are from Arab backgrounds, who are from African backgrounds, Asian backgrounds. I think the president ought to know better. He's a man of education. He's a man of, I mean, as a media personality before he became a before he became a political leader. And I think that certainly he should know better. And I don't know whether it was I don't know whether it was an ignorant comment or whether it was trying to tap into that kind of ethnic identity, that passionate, passionate ethnic identity to kind of inspire the Ukrainian people. But I think if it were the latter, he certainly missed an opportunity to inspire a lot of other people who I'm sure would have picked up arms and defended that country that they've, you know, gone through hardship to get to and built a life in. So, yeah, I think from the president of a country, you expect better. You expect a better attitude. You expect a better, I'm trying to think of, trying to think of the word, a more inclusive comment, I think, regardless of where that country is. Yeah. There's obviously lots going on for him and there's no, there's no 
never a good reason for anyone to say anything or uh, uh, to excuse what's been said and perhaps it could have been what you suggested Liam is trying to galvanise Ukrainians but not going about it in the right way because he's alienating people that are Ukrainian who identify as Ukrainian but they might not be white or, or that they, they're contributing to the country if we if we if we shift back to something we, we were going to discuss a bit earlier in the show just before we, we kind of begin to wrap things up where next? It's a huge, big, open-ended question. I realise that we could focus on the the where next for the refugees that are displaced. The where next? Yes, we're thinking of hypotheticals. But if Putin did manage to overthrow the government and he took control of another country, this is the danger. Is the danger is is he going to then try it with another country? Is he going to try it with Poland and you know, some of the other Eastern European countries? If countries further in the West, such as the UK, France, uh, Germany, the US, don't physically get involved in military wise but we know the ramifications or the potential ramifications of that if they do get involved which is why they haven't at the moment where could this go next if putin is successful in, in over, overthrowing the, the ukrainian government liam if we come to you first you know what maybe if we focus <laughs> on the best case scenario and the, and the worst case scenario okay well, I suppose to answer that question in two parts, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot there's a lot of ways there's a lot of ways that Putin could go from where he is now. He isn't contrary to the way the figures look. He isn't in a stronger position. He isn't in a strong a strongest position as as some people would have you believe. He's losing his troops at a rate of five to one in in comparison to the Ukrainian troops. There's unconfirmed reports of mass desertions from the Russian army. I mean, I'm talking five percent of that force having deserted. Because they see the Ukrainians as almost, you know, almost sharing a, a common lineage and a common kind of nationalist spirit. And there's, I think there's, a, I can't, I can't put a number on it, but I think there's a huge amount of those Russian soldiers that don't want to be fighting the Ukrainians. They, they don't want to be in, in this particular battle. He isn't in a strong position as people would have you believe. But I suppose a best case scenario. For the world, obviously, I'm not particularly interested in the best case scenario for Putin and Russia. The best case scenario for the world, answered very briefly, is, is him withdrawing. But there's almost zero chance of that happening. I think the best case scenario for the world is that Ukraine can fight off the Russian advance. But quite honestly, again, there is really, I think, really not a lot of chance of that happening. I think the best case realistic scenario, and what if you, if you ask me to pin my colours to the mast, I would say is going to happen is that Russia will, in in my opinion, if they stick to the guns, take Ukraine. It, it will happen. Ukraine has committed its entire armed forces and a lot of it and, and are training a lot of its civilian population to fight. Russia's got Russia's got 60-70% of its armed forces, possibly more, in reserve. At the end of the day, if Russia keeps committing troops to this and keeps keeps sending in more manpower, more tanks, more planes then Ukraine's a much smaller country with a, a much smaller standing army. Eventually, it will fall. It's a matter of if it's in a, a day, a week, or a month, or a year, it will fall. Now, what you've got to look at then is what victory looks like. So we've seen this, we've seen this kind of situation before. We've seen it in Vietnam from the 50s with the French occupation to the American war, as they call it, in Vietnam. We've seen it in Afghanistan and Putin himself as... A man of the Soviet Union should know that himself. If you take on an enemy who are fiercely patriotic, fiercely nationalist, have military training, and know the land they fight on, total victory and pacification of the country will not be achieved in a generation. 
I think I do see Putin taking Ukraine, and I think it's going to take less than a month. But taking and defining as holding the capital, I think a lot of those Ukrainian forces, if you notice, if you look at a map of Ukraine, there's cities in the north, there's cities in the south, and the cities in the east and west. The centre of Ukraine is plains, thick forests, mountains, valleys. You can hide, there's places in the Ukraine where you can hide an entire division of the armed forces. You could hide most of their army there. They'll do what we've seen in Vietnam when the Americans, I mean, the Americans were in Vietnam for, for nine years in a, in a full war situation. For nine years, they actually took most of the major cities within six months, but they could not win the countryside and they could not win the jungles because they were fighting an enemy that constantly retreated, constantly disappeared, chose the ground that they fought on, had adapted to the situation. And I think that that long term is what, what Russia will face in the Ukraine, a continued damaging insurgency where every bit of infrastructure they build or repair is mysteriously demolished. They send their patrols out into the countryside and they disappear in ambushes. Constant sniper attacks, constant improvised explosive devices like we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. And strangely, I think that's the best, actually the best outcome for the world world as a whole. Keeps Russia tied up in, in the Ukraine. They'll be fighting that for the next 10 years until they eventually withdraw, just like America did in Afghanistan, just like America did in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the, the Soviets did in Afghanistan, and like America again did in Vietnam and Cambodia. That's the best case scenario for the world. We'll keep Putin's Putin's armed forces tied up in the Ukraine. And I think it will prevent that head-on collision with NATO in Poland. Worst case scenario, and you know, I get that quite a long answer, so I'll try to be a bit briefer, because I think worst case scenario is simpler. Worst case scenario is a direct confrontation with NATO, which has never happened before. Ne- literally never happened before since NATO was created in the 40s. If Putin can somehow take and pacify Ukraine in a way that he can continue and advance. I don't think his intent, don't get me wrong, I don't think his intention is to, you know, recreate the Iron Curtain in 1948 and roll across Eastern Europe. I don't think it is. But you've then got, for the first time ever, NATO and Russia putting heads on a border. It's the last time it happened with the Soviet Union. And we all know how close the world came to nuclear war when you had the border skirmishes around the Berlin Wall, when you had the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, I, th- I personally think, do I, do I think there'll be a nuclear war? No, genuinely I don't. I don't, think, I don't think a nuclear war is possible in this day and age. It's an act of suicide by the country that starts it at the very least. Do I think that a second Cold War, where we are constantly on a state of high alert because these two superpowers are putting, in, putting up against each other in a state of constant constant anger and constant hostility. And do I think that mistakes in that situation could happen? Yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. There's been a couple of examples where, and this has come out after the fall of the Soviet Union, but where Russian early warning radar has picked up missiles being launched from silos in North America. All the alerts on you know Russian radar operator screen have been saying, launch missiles in response and they've gone, no, it must be a mistake with the computers. It can't have happened. It must be a mistake in the computers. And if it weren't for that disobedient Russian officer, Looking at that radar screen in Siberia, all the nukes that have been launched and probably killed, you know, two thirds of the world's population. But I do think that the capacity for those mistakes is still there. So I think that's the. I think the realistic worst case scenario is a second Cold War. Mm. Like I said, I don't think nuclear war is possible. But when you've got 
then stood with the finger on the trigger of the nuclear weapons in a high-tension situation. Mistakes can, and I think inevitably will happen. We've been so close to the edge so many times. We've been the, the Union of Atomic Scientists, like you say, they've had us at one minute to midnight for a long time now. I actually think when it comes to accidents involving high-tension situations internationally and nuclear weapons, I think we've actually outgrown as luck now. I think we're really on borrowed time there. And I don't think the, I don't think the world can withstand much time on that kind of high alert. So I'm sorry that neither, neither of those pictures, I mean, neither of those pictures that I've painted are particularly sunny. And much as I would love to tell the boys own hero story of, you know, the Ukrainian the Ukrainian resistance and the civilians fighting off the, the massively powerful Russian neighbour and taking back the independence of the country, I'd be lying to you if I said I thought it were likely. And this is the thing though, Liam, isn't it? It's, it's as, soon, as soon as he went in, you knew he was going to go in at some point, but as soon as he went in, you knew that the world was going to change. However much of that world is going to change, but it, the, some part of that world was going to change as, as, as we knew it because you, you just you can't, you just can't go into someone else's house and start doing what you want and taking what you want and destroying things without there being wider repercussions. So however long it takes, like you said, it could be it could could take a while before he actually he does overthrow the country. It could be sooner rather than later, but it is highly likely that that's going to happen at some point. And then whatever comes after that, it's not it's not going to be good either for that part of the world or for a larger part of the world. I'm just um thinking on this and I know that I mean there's other countries like America and obviously ourselves in the UK that you know, we're kind of stepping up. We're not really getting as much in, as involved. We're kind of there on the sidelines watching it, things unfold, kind of waiting for that next move by Putin. But it, it does make you wonder if if there is going to be any involvement from the British Army, from the American Army, because as you said, we can we've got mass amounts of, of soldiers in both. You know, I mean, both those both countries really, and that might put a stop in terms of looking, saying, okay, right, you've you know, I mean, you could be still in Ukraine doing this, but we're going to be there as well to stop you at the front line. And there's going to be other countries, like you said, like NATO, there to kind of make sure that it doesn't continue. So yeah, I'm hoping there's some sort of that end to this because it's as you said you don't want to you don't want to think of the worst case. I know you mentioned Liam that, that could there could be severe repercussions. And when you think of countries like North Korea, China, I mean the list goes on really countries that have got nuclear warheads that could literally wipe out a country or you know I mean or a number of countries shall we say. So it's it is worrying. Yeah, the last the last thing we want to be at is like loggerheads with countries, you know, I mean disagreeing with what another country's doing and and then that causes more conflict as well. And you just want everyone to be together to kind of unite against I mean the main person really that started that starting this. And we hope there's some sort of conclusion in the end. But as you said, there, there is that worry that, you know, I mean the Ukrainians are safe and you kind of flee I mean there's a lot of them that have fleed the country already but we do hope that the rest of the people do leave so they're not involved in these airstrikes that are happening and because there's going to be a lot of repair to the to the capital um, and all the other countries that have had that oh, sorry areas in Ukraine those missiles launched that as well so yeah Thanks for your time guys I'm sure we'll be discussing this again at some point it is something that's unfortunately I think we all feel is going to be going on for a very long time and mm-hmm. I know all our thoughts will be with the people in Ukraine and the families and also members of their families who are living in different parts of the world who maybe can't get in touch with them mm-hmm. at the moment I know we all want things to end positively and we know we know that things don't look great but hopefully something might might shift and there's not going to be many more deaths unnecessary deaths which yeah. you know that there has been so far thanks for listening everyone thank you for joining us Liam and Jay yeah, thank you Liam again. Thank nice. you. and um, we'll catch everyone next time cheers